Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. Ann Applebaum is a columnist for the Washington Post and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She is also professor of practice at the London School of Economics Institute of Global Affairs, where she runs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. Formerly a member of the Washington Post editorial board, she has also worked as the foreign and deputy editor of The Spectator magazine in London, as the political editor of The Evening Standard, and as a columnist at Slate and at several British newspapers, including The Daily and Sunday Telegraphs. From 1988 through 1991, she covered the collapse of communism as the Warsaw correspondent of The Economist magazine and The Independent newspaper. Her newest book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, was published in October 2017. As the world tilts towards a rise in illiberalism and authoritarianism, there is no one more qualified to speak about these troubling dynamics than Anne Applebaum, a renowned commentator on global affairs and a book author who has written extensively about the fault lines between the East and the West. Welcome to The Thought Project, Anne Applebaum. Thank you. Incredibly delightful to have you here today. It's a week after a terrible episode in New Zealand. Um, I'm going to ask a question, sort of an open question. Could you have imagined this current state of global relations and the state of democracies looking back 30 years to that exhilarating moment when the Berlin Wall came down? Uh, bringing the Iron Curtain down, ultimately. Well, of course, you have to start by remembering that when the Iron Curtain came down, we had no idea what would happen next, um, and we didn't know that what would come next would be democracy. Um, and that was a that was actually a longer term project to to see to see that it happened. But I mean, I take your your broader point, which is that the much of what was built in the 1990s. Um, some built successfully, some at great cost, and so on. But much of what was built at the nineteen the nineteen nineties is is absolutely now under siege, um, and it's under siege from in different ways, from the revival of authoritarianism to um, the the a new information system, which in, in in a number of different ways is making making it difficult to have democratic debates in the way that we used to, um, and you know some of the weaknesses of. Western democracies themselves, both economic and political, are suddenly coming to the fore. So yes, we're we're at a, having been at a kind of global high, ten or fifteen years ago, when we had more. There were more democracies around the world than than ever before in history, and when it felt like more and more were um, were joining that group. Um, we're certainly now we're now certainly moving in the other direction. I, I do think. Um I do think your point about we didn't really know how it was going to go is a fair point uh, when the wall came down. But the shocking return of rhetorical fascism 
and perhaps even acts that could ultimately be ju uh, judged uh, fascistic is now occurring at this moment. Um, also, the really tenuous relationship between the United States and Europe, uh, you know, most uh, protracted example would be the really almost hostile relationship with Germany between Trump and Merkel. Um, these events, quite frankly, I couldn't have uh, I couldn't have imagined even ten years ago. I, you know, have done a lot of democracy development work myself, so I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, uh, in Southeastern Europe, um, and I think your point about uh, disinformation. This is, seems to be. Uh, Mr. Putin's really uh, uh, art that he is now really leveraging, uh, not only in a place like Ukraine, but also in the U.S. elections in 2016. Yes. So just to unpack that a little, yes, I, I've been following the the Russian use of disinformation for some years, actually going back to before, well before 2016. It was interesting, a colleague of mine and I wrote a, were part of a group that wrote a big paper on Russian disinformation uh, that was published in 2015. And we took it around Washington. Um, we went to the Hill and we went to the State Department and we showed it to people and we had discussions about it. And we said, you know, look, this is a really big problem. We see that, you know, they're organized you know, can't we, you could already see then trolling campaigns and the use of bots and, and artificial, um, uh, you know, artificial amplification of stories and so on. You could see how it was working and it was working together with um, corruption and other tools. And we sort of took it around Washington. People were interested and they said, well, that, you know, that seems like it's a very bad problem for Slovenia and we're terribly sorry. And maybe we can allocate some money in the next defense budget to think about it a little bit, but nobody really saw this as a kind of central problem that authoritarian rhetoric and um, authoritarian regimes would be kind of acting inside our political systems using our tools, using Facebook that we invented, um, and using, in effect, our tolerance for free speech to try and manipulate our politics. Um, but that's what happened, and you could I saw it very early in the 2016 campaign. Um, you know, I saw, you know, I saw how Russian, I, you know, I could, I, I follow Sputnik and I follow RT and the sort of, even just the mainstream, this isn't the clandestine stuff, this right. is the open stuff. This is the open access. I could, I yeah. could see, I could see what was going on and how it was mirroring um, the Trump campaign. Um, and I started writing about it very early and I was very, very careful how I wrote about it because I didn't want to sound like a an crazy alarmist, person, you yeah. know, or a conspiracy theorist. Right, right. Um, but, you know, in, in retrospect, um, a lot of this was very obvious very early on, the, the close relationship. <clears throat> yes, I mean, I think Washington should have been prepared for this because as early as 2007, Russia was hacking Estonia. In 2008, they hacked Georgia. And then, of course, they hacked the uh, 2014 Ukrainian elections. And I even saw an article in Christian Science Monitor saying, well, the U.S. elections are next year. Uh, could they be, uh, you know, attacked? And it seems seems like, in retrospect, that they really weren't prepared for it. No, nobody was prepared for it. I mean, and even I, so I, as I said, it was 2014. It wasn't so much that there wasn't an election. It was the, what happened, the invasion of Ukraine was accompanied by this just extraordinary... Disinformation. Disinformation campaign, PR campaign, working on multiple levels in many different countries using all different kinds of tools that suddenly we all realized were there. Um, and I thought, well, some of this is succeeding... 
you know, it succeeds because of weak systems and it, you know, probably wouldn't work in a really big democracy because people would call it out and they would be. Um, but but in, in fact, the U.S. system turned out to sort of, you know, the the it's not so much democracy, but the, the information infrastructure turned out to be much easier to manipulate than, um, you know, than I even I had understood. Um, but yes, I mean, you're right that the the Russian tools, which is is a combination of disinformation, meaning calculated, planned campaigns, you know, um, artificially amplified using tools like bots and trolls and so on. That plus the use of corruption, um, plus um, combining that sometimes with foreign policy. You know, these, we, we started we started using the expression at this time, hybrid war, right. hybrid campaigns. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that they had been working on this and inventing it and thinking about how to do it for a long time. Um, and as you say, they'd done it in Estonia. They uh, in 2007 they and this was a combination of cyber war plus information war. They had done it in Georgia in 2008, and this was cyber war, information war, and real war. They actually invaded Georgia. Exactly. Um, and then they yeah. did it again in Ukraine when during the invasion of Crimea. And so, so we had seen that they were capable of doing this, but the idea that they were they would then focus these these tools on the United States, I think um, people were surprised by. You're right. Yes, and we will see how much uh, is reported to the American public. I mean, the Hill is investigating uh, these issues, and also Mueller's uh, report is anticipated, uh, and it remains to be seen how much we're going to know. Yes, I've been told, I mean, just as an aside, to be very careful because Mueller's report may not be what we expect it to be. In other words, it may not be a kind of narrative story about what happened. It may be it may be something much more fragmented. And, you know, he may feel very limited by what he's by the, by the legal structure of what he is and isn't allowed to do. It, it might be quite dissatisfying. But right. But we'll see. I mean, it's we're you know, we could be released in the next five minutes or in the next five months. So probably true. While the Democrats are carrying out, you know, investigations across many committees, so, but yet uh, the next election is not that far away, so it may not even be well, really understood before the next election. No, I mean, some of what the Russians were able to do in 2016, for example, the creation of um, you know, remember they were using several different. There were several different things they did. One was, um, one was the, you know, one was an advertising campaign. One was the creation of fake Facebook pages, right. kind of fake groups around them that were designed both to promote. I mean, we, we now understand how this works, both to promote um, anti-immigration groups in Idaho and at the same time Black Lives Matters groups elsewhere that were designed to suppress the vote and persuade people not to vote, not to come out and vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, so we know they were, you know, we now understand that they were doing this and these were fake sites and they were created in St. Petersburg by um, by people who Mueller has actually identified and we now know the names of the GRU agents um, who did this. This was, he's already, he's already issued those indictments. Um, so we now understand that technique. That might be harder now because um, because Facebook is now more careful than it was before, and the, these companies are now taking down um, sites, fake accounts, s- sites yeah. that are that are yeah. misle- that are based on um, that are that lie about where they come from and what they are. Um, I mean, the, and the rules are evolving all the time, but I, they're, they're much they're more conscious of doing this now than than they used to be. Um, but the trouble is, of course, that tactics of disinformation also evolve constantly. 
I mean, sort of one right. of the, one of the tactics now is that is the creation of I mean, real-looking fake news sites that look like they're providing real information but really aren't. Um, and there could be sometimes hundreds and thousands of them, and they, you know, in aggregate, they could, they're they an attempt to alter algorithms. So if they produce certain kinds of information all at the same time, that will change. You know, again, people are onto this, and it may be, um, there may be ways of disabling it. And people are much more aware now than they were before. But yeah, there will be there will be new ways to do it. There will be new attempts, um, and of course, the most important point is that a lot of these tactics, you know, the Russians invented or perfected. Um, but these are not high tech, difficult operations. Right. They're or very very expensive, um, and so there. And the distinction now between what's Russian and what's domestic, whether it's in the United States or in Germany or or, or anywhere else, is. Is often negligible, and I think there's going there's now going to be a much more difficult kind of legal and moral and political um, decisions to be made about domestic disinformation. So if it's if it's coming from inside our own system, and if it's Americans um, who are creating these, you know, fake. It's not it's not so much fake sites. It's it's kind of fake. Um, you know, fake campaigns, campaigns, right. um, fake ecosystems, really. Right. Um, it, it's you know, if it's Americans doing that, um, it's going to be much more difficult to 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 stop it. Um, no, I think you're right. I think uh, Putin is. I think he's a good tactician, and it was. It's a cheap investment that had an incredible payoff. Probably the biggest takedown by the Russians. Uh, ever. Yeah, I mean, remember, it wasn't just disinformation. I mean, they had a corrupt, or, a, or a, a, anyway, they had a financial relationship with Trump and with the Trump company oh, going, sure. going back many decades. This isn't, this isn't, no, this isn't just one thing, of yeah. course. And and it wasn't just disinformation. And also, you have to, you know, it's always important to remember that what they are, what they've been good at, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, um, is betting, you know, placing bets on you know, unexpected people or on anyway that using existing political divides. So they didn't invent, you know, the constituency that elected Trump. Oh, I mean, they didn't, um, absolutely. Yeah. So they just push. You know, it's just it's them trying to trying to push. I mean, it's the same, for example, um, in France. I mean, they didn't invent Marine Le Pen, who's the French far right, right leader, right. who they've who they very openly backed. In other words, they see cleavages. They, they see and cleavages they, and they jump into that and they cleavage jump, exactly. and, and exploit it. Exactly, that's what they do, and yes. and they're not the only ones doing it. And now there are lots sure. of people doing it, and people. So it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say this is a Russian, you know, solely Russian operations. Um, there, there are other actors. Um, but yeah, I mean, this. Is, but it's true that this is something that we have not contended with in a long time, and we had some version of this during the Cold War in a, in a much different era with a different um, platform, different platforms, Which, yeah. and different kind of news cycle. Um, but but the the surprise of the last decade has been the return of authoritarianism in it, in an international forum and authoritarian rhetoric. Um, designed to undermine democracy. And of course, it's not just an American problem. It's a problem all across the world, in fact. Um, and, the, and the use of new forms of media to, to do that. And no, I don't think we were kind of intellectually prepared for a new version of authoritarianism to challenge democracy in very basic ways. And that is what we've seen um, recently. Yes. Um, Speaking of which, I mean, just I mean, just last week there was this major uh, terrorism attack in Christchurch, New Zealand. 
uh, killing 50 people who were engaged in prayer in two different mosques. Um, there's been a lot of conjecture and writing about who influenced um, the the terrorists, including white nationalists. And But you just wrote a piece on radicalisms and why do we care just about one or two uh, different uh, approaches to it. In fact, this has been breaking in uh, the Balkans that this perpetrator was actually listening to Serbian Chetnik music on the way to right. the mosques uh, that was idolizing Radovan Kardic, who just incidentally will face uh, a judgment this coming week in The Hague. Uh, and that's sort of been played uh, sort of been just sort of dismissed by U.S. papers. It's it's pick, been picked up more in Europe and in the Balkans, even in Turkey. They've been covering it. Um, talk about this uh, radicalisms that that you uh, wrote about recently, and and uh, how this maybe you know sort of looked at through one or two lenses but we really need to open our 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 brains up to more broader broader interpretations of how radicalism actually occurs so online radicalization um which is what it looks like this um the 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 killer in in New Zealand um had gone through um is something that i, I wouldn't say that it's uh, you know, you know, we fully understand it, and science can solve it or anything like that. But it is something that we know a lot about. Um, and what is striking about um, what we're sometimes calling white nationalism or white supremacism, um, and which in Europe is often called the identitarian movement, is how much it, in some ways, is beginning to resemble jihadism, in that it's a kind of mishmash of international ideas. Anybody can tap into it in different places. It, you know, there is a there is an audience for it online, and there are there are kind of stages that you can go through in order to get to it. In other words, there is a kind of generally accessible world of what you would call the alt right, or even milder versions of it, where mm-hmm. people make racist jokes online and teenagers click on them because they're funny. And and sometimes genuinely funny, um, and where people poke fun at the pomposity of mainstream culture and so on, and that's and you and can political and political po- correctness and so on, and so people right. and so people who are eighteen think that's funny and so on. right, um, and you can then get from there to um, you know various online personalities who who. Alt, who then do propagate. very engaging, who yeah. propagate yeah. sometimes very light, and one of the one of the characterizations or one of the typical typical things about it is it's often you know the 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 mode of speech is ironic and parodic. So mm-hmm. you know they say ironic things, you know, and it's it's never quite clear whether they really mean it or not. You know, so you sometimes say very shocking things as part of a joke. And that's kind of that's one of the and so through this through finding this funny you can watch more of it you can be led into into more extreme versions of it um, you can go off the mainstream platforms and you can wind up you know first in Reddit and then on 4chan or um, right or 8chan then you can end up on Gab AI there there are these there are these more extreme versions of it that you can get led into. Um, and slowly, you know, until after a while, this is what you're reading. This is what you're seeing. You know, you can curate your world so this is what you see all the time. 
Um, and then you become part of a kind of radical online community. You speak to its members all the time. You begin to feel that you're part of some kind of special world. You have special information. You have a, a kind of diagonal relationship to mainstream culture where you're laughing at it all the time and making fun of people who are who believe these pious things about racism and so on. Um, and you can be, um, and you can be, this is what radicalization is. And this is not that different from how jihadi radicalization works. They're right. also kind of Online, entryway yeah. gates. You know, you come in mm-hmm. in a normal way and maybe you come from a conservative Muslim family and that's normal. But then you get led into increasingly more violent and more extreme versions of it until finally you're surrounded by that. And that's what you're speaking to and dealing with. And the the killer in New Zealand, one of the oddities about him was, first of all, he was signaling all kinds of things both in the video he used as you as you mentioned by using the serbian music right that was kind of music to kill muslims by that's right it was used yeah. by the serb militia right during so the he Bosnian knew so, war. Right. right and then he in his manifesto some of what he was doing seems to have been again ironic and joking uh, some of the people for example he made a reference to trump Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Which may or may not have been serious. It may have been, maybe he really is inspired by Trump at some level. Maybe he threw that in to kind of create, he knew that what he was doing would create hysteria and would create a political argument. Maybe he he wants to make that political argument more bitter and angry and he wants to create a backlash and a reaction. So that may have been um, one of the reasons he mentioned it. And some of the... Some of what he was doing was an attempt to divide and anger and um, and polarize people. And that is, of course, also what jihadi um, terrorism is meant to do as well. I mean, the idea of jihadi terrorism is that we bring down the West. Or, um, right. They want to bring down the West. They want to destroy Western civilization. They want to make us argue and so on. Um, and create this create this backlash and this white identitarianism terrorism is is the same thing. His idea is that he wants to create a civil war so that these corrupt, you know, diverse Western societies are destroyed and some truer, better, purer civilization can arise. All that sounds pretty nuts, but there is a there is a community of people online who believe it, just as there is a community of people online who believe that we can resurrect the ancient caliphate and create. Um, you know, a medieval Muslim state, um, you know, you know of, of, of true course. believers, sure. and so in in their essence, they're quite similar. Um, and the and the and the way radicalization works in both cases is also quite similar. Yeah, it, and it seems like um, I mean, there's a lot to be learned from each one of these incidents, and we'll see, you know, what comes out in New Zealand. Uh, they they will be sharing things probably quietly among intelligence you know communities, right? Uh, but I mean, but actually, I should say one of your one of the point of your earlier question. I'm sorry, which I didn't sure, answer is please. that until now we have not treated this identitarianism, this white right, nationalism. Right. We haven't treated it with the same seriousness that we treat uh, jihadi. Um, radicalism. You know, we haven't looked at its sources. We haven't sought to take down the the you know the kind of gateway websites. We haven't tried to identify the people. We haven't thought about counter radicalization strategies. We have a little bit actually. I mean, there there are groups in Europe who do that. And sure. They're 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 okay, in the U.S. as well, but but um, but we haven't. It hasn't been the same kind of political issue, obviously, here that that jihadi terrorism had has been until now. Right. And and in, in the US the FBI has, you know, indicated that the most the biggest threat domestically isn't fact from these white 
uh, supremacist groups, uh, the Center for the Southern uh, Law Poverty Project, they track these groups. They're hate crime, hate groups. And um, there's a lot of militias in the United States uh, that are armed. And uh, Trump, when he is, is confronted with it, he, he basically just sort of dismisses it. Yeah, well, these are going to be in kind of intellectually more difficult for us to deal with because they're domestic. Sure. I mean, it's not like you can identify the foreigners and throw them out. Right, uh, or, exactly. Um, and this is a, and yes, it is, there is a, you know, I don't, I actually don't want to say that, you know, mainstream, that even the president is responsible for terrorism. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that to be true, but there is a kind of continuum on which this exists. Um, which is a domestic continuum and not a foreign one. Right. Um, and that is why it's going to be more difficult to deal with. Charlottesville yes, exactly. is, the, exa- is exactly. the example, right? Exactly. So I, I want to go back to Europe. I mean, you you are a Europeanist, and, um, and what has been going on in Europe, uh, in, including the, the rise of illiberal uh, states such as Hungary, Viktor Orban, um, of course, now we have uh, right-wing governments in Austria and Italy. Uh, Poland has, uh, you know, brought back the law. It's, it's still in it's still in contest in Poland. It's, it's still yeah, yes, a- yes. Um, but but it's a it's a situation with regard to Orban, who has been visited by Bibi Netanyahu, and they've held press conferences together, gaslighting George Soros. They pushed Central European University out of Hungary. Uh, these these events have been deeply troubling. So the Hungarian thing is complicated. I mean. Um, Orban did started in quite a different place. He was a he was a young liberal um, who was actually educated at Oxford on a Soros scholarship twenty five years ago, um, and so his his progress I think is mostly to do with um, his power obsession and his desire mm-hmm. to stay. One of the things he he was one of the first to work out was that his there were weaknesses of the Hungarian state that he could exploit, and that if he could exert political control over the the legal system um, over the media right you know that he could begin to take over some of the into what were meant to be the independent institutions of the state and it turned out they were weaker than people realized um, and I think this in his case it began as a way as a desire to stay in power and not lose um, and he began to do that and I think he then subsequently developed a kind of ideology around it you know that this was um, that this was about, I don't know, traditional values or Christianity or something like that. I mean, but I think that's very much secondary. I think this is a, this is about, in his case, it's about money, it's about power, power. it's about enriching his family and his friends. Um, it's about, you know, making sure they don't lose an election. He, he lost an election um, at one point, um, which he found to be very, he had been in power and then he lost and he found that to be very painful and unpleasant. And I think he's trying to never repeat that again. So... So what you've seen in him is somebody who's used the weaknesses of his state and used, it's a very small country, there's a lot, it's very centralized. Sure. Um, and he also used another um, another thing that he's done, which is which is a real canary in the coal mine, because I think all it's, this is going to be true in all Western democracies. Um, he realized before others did how weak the media is. Exactly. And how, we, and how weak yes. it is financially. Yes. Not so much, you know, intellectually, although that too, but how 
easy it was to take over the ownership of big newspaper groups. And this is, of course, particularly true in a small country where there aren't that many of them. There's only a few television channels. And it turns out that you can both use the instruments of the state to, um, you know, for example, you can make it very difficult for an independent channel to get advertising. Of course. If you're the government. I mean, that Um, was one of his first acts, wasn't it, to amend the Constitution with regard to press freedom. Right. So with regard to press freedom. But then he did something even more than that, which is that he understood that he could take over the companies that ran the media and make sure that they were run by friends of his. Um, And this this process of taking over the media is then something that others are now imitating. Modeling. And as the media has, um, and all kinds of media, by which I mean newspapers and I mean websites and I I mean television stations, um, as it has become clear that you know one of the one of the many impacts of the internet is that it is sorry of social media is that it has captured the advertising markets that used to go to other kinds of media and so you know genuinely the newspapers are now out of money um, in right. many countries particularly right. smaller countries they don't have the money they don't have advertising um, it's been taken over by Facebook so it turns out to be very easy to take them over and just kind of tip them. Um, and then they get distributed to oligarchs. And he understood that first, but it's a process that I think we'll see in many countries um, unless we find alternative funding models, unless we get used to the idea that newspapers have to be um, you know, publicly funded or they have to be funded through charity or they have to be philanthropies or you know, some of that. And actually, but, one of the first people who did begin to understand this was the Soros Foundation, right. which and they began funding some independent media, and that's part of... Orban's animus against Soros. Sure, that makes sense. Um, But it's regrettable, don't you think, that the EU didn't take action sooner? Because this gets... Then what does the EU stand for? These these are the issues that when you look at the Balkans and their, you know, hopes to join the EU, uh, people become extremely cynical because they don't see the EU acting consistent with its yes. values and I mean, principles. The, in Hungary, part of the problem was that Orban did what he did very slowly. Um, and he did initially um, constitutionally. So in other words, he he had this constitutional majority. So he started to change so the constitution. So he could do so it. So it, it was very hard to know. Whereas right. for, the, that is a contrast, for example, to Poland, where upon a kind of populist party won their elections in 2015 and immediately set about which with a minor, with a with a without a constitutional majority in fact a very very slim majority based on a minority of support and so on um, they were just very lucky the way the the parliamentary math worked um, and they didn't have a majority of the population at all but they tried to use their very thin majority to change the constitution and that was something that you did find easy to stop and there right. was there and has Merkel she and there, she well so it wasn't Merkel it was the it was EU institutions pushed back and said um, you know and 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 said that Poland was violating various standards to do with judicial independence and so on and, and which interestingly has been very popular in Poland I mean, people are glad that you have done that. that. Uh-huh. Um, and that's been... And that's good. I mean, that's it's good, good for EU as it's an good. institution. I mean, it's, it's good for the EU as an institution. The story is not over yet, and it's there's still more to go, and we don't know how it will, how it how will work it out. End. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you that the, the you know, given where we are, it was, you know, now we're in a place where I don't believe Hungary is a democracy anymore. Um, it, In all kinds of ways, um, Orban is... You know, it's essentially not possible anymore for an opposition party to win an election because of lots of small things that he's done. So we would call that state capture. I mean, I would say it's state capture, and and 
And yes, I think it's time for EU institutions to start kicking him out. Um, you know, it's because it's never happened before, it's difficult to do. But I agree with you that there is a problem with ideas and ideals and so on. I mean, frankly, there's a problem for NATO as well. Absolutely. And on NATO, one of the issues, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, um, is that one of their principles that they espouse is they say they support democracies. So when you look at one of its most recent uh, members that joined uh, Montenegro, where you got a really corrupt government, which has been there for a long time. And Mr. Djukanovic is the transcendent uh, political uh, political entity there. He, if, if he uh, leaves office, he might be dead or he might have resigned, which would be really, uh, really um, uh, uh, an aberration in his case because he's gone from the president to the prime minister, sort of like Putin with Medvedev. Um, and now you're talking about this country that's pretty corrupt, and some people are like, well, are they protected because they're in NATO, or are they protected by authorities, uh, and, and they openly know that they're they're corrupt. So that that is a problem in that in so that Na- example. NATO, is, NATO historically has had non-democracies as members, um, including uh, Turkey, right? Including Turkey, and prior to that, even 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 further back, um, Spain was a member before sure. it was a democracy. Sure. So there there have been several other members of NATO who were not democracies. So it has a slightly different history, and it, I mean, it did make. Um, democratic accountability and separation of, um, uh, you know, the civilian control of the defense mm-hmm. of the army, a condition for, for becoming a member, member of NATO sure. in the 1990s for the new East European states. I, I just want to yeah. say, though, you do see, you hear these EU talking points and you hear NATO. They're tracking together. Yeah, they are tracking together. They are tracking together. I just want to say that. Yeah, no, no. They are tracking together and... Um, it is certainly, you know, Hungary is certainly a problem, I think, for NATO, um, not only because of its behavior, but also, uh, you know, internal politics, but because um, Orban has now also decided to play both sides with, um, you know, he's very friendly with the Russians. They're big, there's a big Russian um, nuclear power investment in Hungary, which is very, very fishy. The, the, pay, the, mm-hmm. the deal has always remained secret. It's thought that lots of bribes are being paid. And, and so there's a Orban. There's yeah. a there's suspicion that there's a lot of um, corruption in Hungary that's Russian connected. Um, and that's been a problem for the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think I think it is a problem. The, 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 the dilemma has been whether um, whether it's more important to keep these countries in and therefore maintain a relationship with them or whether at some point they'll be expelled. I mean, I think that's, you know, we're, we're a ways away from that moment, but we might be, we might eventually get there. So speaking of the EU, I mean, you, you just wrote a piece on, on the Brexit in the UK's agonizing process to, to obtain an agreement to leave. Um, I thought one of the best sentences that you wrote, you were quoting, uh, about how the Brexit has de- devastated Britain's international reputation and respect for its democracy. Uh, you quoted uh, uh, in this sentence, 
Uh, but even if you took a bunch of Italians, Poles, and Hungarians, kept them up all night and got them drunk, they still wouldn't come up with anything <laughs> as disastrous as what we are seeing in the House yes. of Commons, unquote. <laughs> this is my Italian friend. So that's that was yeah. a great quote. <laughs> uh, that gives you a picture uh, to to uh, think about. I mean, I always like to watch the prime minister's questions. I think it's one of the most interesting practices in a democracy, even as an American, I find it very interesting. And I've been watching it during these these torturous debates. Um, what do you think? Clearly, you've you've made your observations uh, evident in how it's it's ruining um, UK's reputation. So I think it's doing two things. Um, I think it has it is. I mean, I this was predictable actually. Um, it has really sucked all the oxygen out of everything else, and this is all that's happened in Britain for two years. There's really no other politics. Right. There's no other initiatives. And it's also meant that Britain doesn't really have a foreign policy because they just don't have the everybody's doing Brexit. The capacity. They don't have the capacity. capacity. They've had a, they've had to deal with this very weird Russian poisonings and so on. So um so they have some you know, but they've really lost there. And because everybody else in Europe is sick of them, because it's been such a long drawn out process and they you know, the negotiation was difficult and then the Prime Minister has been unable to get her parliament to accept the deal that they she did with Europe. Um you know, it's really meant that Britain has very little influence or say over anything much right now. And that's very, very depressing because Britain has, I think, played a very positive role in international politics for a long time and a very, it's been a very important pillar of the West. Um, and, and that's one piece of it. And the other piece is that this has been really damaging for democracy. And this is both because of, you know, one of the effects of Brexit was that it very badly divided both major parties. So it's not just that the Tories are profoundly divided. The Labor Party is also divided. Um, Labor happens to be led by um, a very extreme, unusual, again, in British history, far left um, leader who is personally in favor of Brexit also because he thinks of the EU as a kind of capitalist cabal, which is ironic because the Tories think of it as a kind of socialist cabal. And you know and so what you have is the spectacle of the of the ruling party being profoundly divided so much so it can't get a deal through and at the same time the opposition not really offering any alternatives you know there isn't it isn't like the labor party has some okay we can fix this if we just take power we would do x y and z and it would be over um you have it's also badly divided and it's also very unclear what they're doing and it looks to a lot of people like they're kind of happy to let the crisis continue because that's good for their poll rating. And so it's a very ugly moment for domestic politics as well. It's kind of um, both major parties seem incompetent. They both seem um, unable to get anything done. And, um, you, you know, I think a lot of people have also kind of lost the plot. I mean, they don't really, it's, we're now really down in the weeds of arguing about parliamentary procedure and what right. can be done and what can't be done and what are the different options and what are the different right. trade issues. And I think for a lot of people, it's now kind of it's boring and frustrating. And they just um, want it to be they over. Want it, they want it to be over. over. And of course, the, the terrible thing is it's not going to be over. I mean, even if they do crash out of the European Union 10 days from now, um, it still won't be over. There will be many more pieces of it to negotiate and many more consequences to deal with, I think, probably for, for you know, a decade or more. 
And so it's, I, you know, it's kind of, it's put, it's like a big, you know, meteorite has fallen on top of British politics and smashed it. Um, and that's a, it's now an indefinite on, you know, kind of endless crisis. Yeah. It's a, yeah, what you would call a frozen conflict. Frozen conflict, exactly. Frozen conflict. Like what the um, Russians are doing in Eastern Ukraine. Exactly. Um, I, I do want to ask you really quickly, the Ukraine presidential elections are at the end of this month. Uh, and... Uh, it's hot. It seems to be hotly contested. And where, where do you think uh, things will shake out? How do you think they'll shake out? There? So I, I really wouldn't want to predict. Okay, <laughs> I don't Fair want to predict enough. what's going to happen in the Ukraine Fair elections. Enough. Um, I mean, Ukraine is a. You know, look, Ukraine is. It's either half empty or half full. It, you know, you can look at it in two ways. I mean, they have made a lot of progress in the last few years, and it is. You know, the economy has recovered and. Many of systems that didn't work before are working now, and I think there has been some attempt to curb corruption, and there are a lot of... There's been some improvements. There's been some improvement. There's some pieces of the government that are working better. There are some parts of the country that are working better. I was just recently in western Ukraine, which is kind of miraculously well-functioning. Um, and That's good the city to hear. Of Lviv. Um, you know, and at the same time, if you want to look at it from the other point of view, it's still... Um, it's profoundly divided by these different oligarchic groups who control different pieces of the media. Um, I mean, it's almost, you know, in Hungary, you have Orban controlling all the media. In Ukraine, it's kind of it's, divided between these different oligarchs. Right. Um, you have these different oligarchic groups, and you still have pretty profound corruption problems, of, you know, the academics. You know. So there's a lot of contestation going there's on. There's a lot of contestation. And People there are also fed up, and as you probably know, one of the main candidates in the presidential race is now literally a comedian who plays a president on television. Yes, I did hear about that. Yeah, that, and, that and, is, and 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 you know, it's a kind of it's one of these protest votes. You know, we we like the president that he plays on TV. We'd like to have mm -hmm. that president. It's very frustrating for everybody else. So it's maybe mockery, more or less. Mockery. Of the, I mean, this but, mockery. But, but by the way, mockery parody. You know, these are. You know, this is a mood you have in a lot of democracies, and I think it's also connected to the nature of political, modern political information, a lot of which is parodic. A lot of what the mm -hmm. Internet does is, I think because it's a medium that is distanced, where you're distanced from events, you're several layers removed from it, you're reading it on your phone, it's somehow conducive to parody in a way that no previous medium was. It, yeah. I want to ask you very quickly, um, I mean, you're... You talked about Russia being really that Putin is weak when he, you know, when he's leveraging uh, these disinformation efforts, and that actually Russia has got a lot of weakness. They're they're they don't have the cash. They're they're not a very diverse economy. It's based on gas and oil, but 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 you're seeing an ascendant China, an ascendant China, you know, who's investing. In, it's expected to be almost $1.3 trillion on their Belt and Road Initiative. And all of a sudden, it seems that Russia and China is getting along together. They seem to say positive things about each other. They give each other a lot of space. What do you think about that relationship and who's up and who's down, so to speak? I think the Russians are very afraid of the Chinese. Um, and you know, I don't think there's that much love lost between them. I mean, I'm not that worried about them somehow becoming friends in, um, in the longer term. 
you know, the Russians are very nervous about the fact that China is wealthier now. I mean, the, the, the border regions, it's very, very noticeable on the Chinese side of the border. You have big buildings and wealthy towns and on the right. Russian side, a lot right. of poverty. So um, everybody's very conscious of this being a very uneven relationship. Um, and I think, the you know, the Russians would rather you know, would still rather do business with and live in the West, you know, the the Russian elite, than they would in China. You don't see them living in Beijing, whereas they do or live in trying London. trying to buy apartments in Beijing. Exactly. They, right, whereas, right. Whereas, so so there is a, it's a, you know, it's, it, it, it's complicated. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think we are, China is another, you know, it's another version of authoritarianism, which is rising and which is seeking to compete with us in different ways. I mean, they have a they have a different attitude in that, you know, the the Russians don't like the current sort of world system and balance of power as it is multipolar. And yeah, they they would yeah. like to undermine us. They would like to undermine democracy. The Western right. democracies. Right. They would like to change the rules. China likes the rules. You know, it's doing well in the current system and it's fine with the rules. Um, and so they don't have the same. They haven't kind of taken aim at democratic politics in the way the Russians have. But as you correctly pointed out, they have other kinds of projects. They are, um, they're very interested in the Balkans. They're very interested in um, Southeast Asia. They're looking to make new alliances. Yeah. Um, they're doing- Their infrastructure- soft power overtures are very interesting to yeah, watch. It's a yeah. little bit different from ours. They're not offering big ideas or, right. or um, they're offering cheap, you know, cheap roads and, right. and pipelines. We'll build a bridge for you. We'll right. build a bridge. Uh, I think um, I think that it, you, what you're seeing is. I mean, I saw them even in Sarajevo. They they had you know like a photography exhibit and paintings, and then they were playing Chinese music, and people were being taught to dance uh, Chinese dances. Yeah, I'm uh, not too worried about that. Actually, no, <laughs> no, that's that was kind of nice, but it's very. I mean, I took notice because I had never seen them there before. They are right. there. They're, yeah, yeah, they're, they're there. They're definitely there. They're in. They're definitely in. They're definitely in Eastern Europe, and they're definitely in the in the Western Balkans. Yeah. So, Anne Applebaum, I really want to thank you for coming today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in to the Thought Project, and thanks to today's guest, Washington Post columnist and author Anne Applebaum. The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.